Welcome back. A little quick recap. We've already gone over two of the worlds in Norse mythology. Midgard. The world we live in. And the concept that we are Inungard. The world inside the fence that is striving to emulate that which is above. And Jotunheim. The world that is Utungard. The chaos outside the fence that is always trying to break into the enclosure. According to the Norse, these are but two of nine worlds on the great tree Yggdrasil. So what are the other worlds? The remaining worlds are Alfheim, Svartalfheim, Vanaheim, Niflheim, Muspelheim, Hel, and Asgard. Due to these worlds having limited information, I decided it seemed a little unfair to do episodes about the rest of them individually, seeing as they wouldn't go even as long as five minutes. So instead, I'm going to tackle the remaining worlds, Yggdrasil, and the chief Norse god Odin, and see what symbolism and lessons can be gleaned from them. So let's begin. The first world, Alfheim, the home of the elves. Picture a world that is eternally in the fall season. The leaves of the trees have changed their color to the various yellows, oranges, and reds, and yet they don't fall to the ground. The elves themselves are described as being luminous and more beautiful than the sun. I think it seems fair to say that their world would be one of light and beauty, almost heaven-like. And there's a little bit of information about Alfheim that comes from a couple of old poems. There's only really two references to it. The first one is in the Edict poem, The Grimnismal, which, des which describes divine dwellings. And the first one goes like this, quote, Idalir call they, the place where Ul, a hall for himself hath set, and Alfheim the gods to Frey once gave, as a tooth gift in ancient times. End quote. A tooth gift was a gift given to an infant when its first tooth started to grow out. My interpretation of this could be wrong, but it sounds as if the elves of Alfheim had offered Frey, or Freya as she's also known, a gift for a child of hers. Which child? Not sure. Balder, possibly? Though it's not explicitly stated. The other reference to Alfheim comes from the Edic prose, the Gilfalgening, written by Snorri Sturluson. It refers to it as the first of a series of abodes in heaven. It goes like this, quote, That which is called Alfheim is one where dwell the peoples called Yosalfar, but the Dokalfar dwell down in the earth, and they are unlike in appearance, but by far more unlike in nature. The light elves are fairer to look upon than the sun, but the dark elves are blacker than pitch. End quote. The Yosalfar are the light elves, and the Dokalfar are the dark elves. The account later speaks of a hall in the highest heaven called Gimle that shall survive when heaven and earth have died. 
It is said that another heaven is to the southward and upward of this one, and it is called Andlang, but the third heaven is yet above that, and it is called Vidblang, and in that heaven we think this abode is. But we believe that none but light elves inhabit these mansions now. That's what the account says. And that's most of what we know about Alfheim and the elves. As far as the reference to the Dokalfar, the dark elves, the beings who dwell down in the earth, this may actually be a reference and a good segue to the next world, to the dwarves of Svartalfheim. There's also another possible name for the home of the dwarves, and it's kind of used interchangeably with Svartalfheim. The other name is Nidvelir, or at least that's as best as I can pronounce it. The dwarves themselves are master smiths and craftsmen who live beneath the ground. Now, Nidvelir, or Svartalfheim, whichever you prefer, was probably thought of as like an immense labyrinth or subterranean complex of mines and forges. If either one of these names you could consider the quote-unquote original one, the name that the Vikings would have used to refer to the dwarves' homeland, it seems like it was probably Nidvelir. For all that the poet Snorri Sturluson contributed to what we know about the Norse mythology, he also left a bit of confusion as to which was the correct name for the home, and as to whether there was a distinction between the dwarves and the Dokalar, the dark elves, whether they were two separate beings who inhabited the same world, or if they were the same race of beings, just with two different names. On a side but related note, something that occurred to me, Lord of the Rings author J.R.R. Tolkien was a fan of Norse mythology, and he incorporated a lot of elements of it into his fictional world of Middle-earth. So if you think about it, Midgard, Middle-earth. The use of dwarves in his fiction, the dwarves in his fiction were a race of beings who dwelt deep in mountains, kind of like the dwarves of Nidvalir who dwelt deep underground. And the elves in Tolkien's world, you could imagine, are probably pretty similar to the brief description of the elves in Alfheim. The people of Rohan from Tolkien are both in description and portrayal in the films. They have Scandinavian-inspired symbols on their architecture as well as their armor. It looks very much like the armor that the Vikings would have worn in the Viking Age. There's a lot more Norse influences in Tolkien's works, but that was just a few quick examples because that kind of just came to my mind. So keeping with the dwarves and going downward, because that's all the, really the information about the dwarves' home there is, we're going to keep going on to the next one. We're going to look at Hel. Also sometimes referred to as Helheim. There's a lot of Heims to these worlds. Hel is the underworld of Norse mythology and is ruled by a goddess of the same name. It's thought of as a cold and dark place, much in keeping with the idea of the grave. It's said that some sort of dog or wolf guards the entrance to Helheim, similar to how Cerberus, the three-headed dog, guards the realm of Hades in Greek and Roman mythology. There's also some belief that the Norse realm of Helheim was less similar to the Christian equivalent to the Christian equivalent of hell, if I could say it properly. And the belief is that while it wasn't necessarily a place of reward like Valhalla, it was not a place of eternal punishment either. 
that those who entered Helheim did pretty much the same thing that Viking Age men and women did in this life, which was fight, eat, drink, work, so on. I tend to disagree with this notion, and it may come from my bias being a Christian, but let me make my case here. I base this on what we know of the realm's ruler, the goddess Hel. For starters, Hel is the daughter of Loki, the selfish trickster god, and the giantess of Jotunheim, Ungerboda. This makes her the sister to the wolf Fenrir, the great wolf who will devour everything in his path during Ragnarok, as well as the world serpent Jormungandr, who are both also offspring of Loki. She comes from a destructive family, and the surviving story we have of her, to give us any kind of glimpse into her personality, comes from the story of Baldur's death. You'll remember that Baldur was killed due to the mischief of Loki. I did a skit on uh, the story of Baldur a few episodes ago. And again, remember, Hel's father is Loki. So Loki's just killed Baldur in this story. He duped the blind god Hodur into throwing a spear made of mistletoe, which was the one thing in existence that had not sworn an oath to not harm Baldur. When Baldur was killed and he went to Helheim, his brother Ermod rode to the underworld to plead with Hel to release him. Hel responded in kind of a taunting manner that she would release him if everything in existence would weep for Baldur. One giantess refused to weep for Baldur, and take a wild guess who the giantess turned out to be, it was Loki in disguise. And so because this giantess didn't weep, Hel kept the beloved Baldur with her in the underworld. I find it hard to believe that the Norse underworld could be a continuation of this world. While this world certainly has its troubles and its misfortunes, it does still have its joys, which I have trouble imagining in a world ruled by a cold-hearted death goddess. But anyway, that's, that's the Norse world of death. So, how about the opposite of death? Life. Well, that brings us to the next world. Vanaheim. Vanaheim is home to the Vanir tribe of Norse gods. It's similar to Alfheim in that it's associated with nature and fertility. Descriptions of the world itself are scarce, and a lot of the information about it is more or less indirect and, inf and inferred. What little we know about it comes from the story of Freya, the leader of the Vanir. As a side note, there's some speculation that Freya is also the leader of the elves of Alfheim, though nothing concrete about that has been determined. Freya and the Vanir gods found themselves in a war with the Aesir, the gods who dwell in Asgard. And that war came about as a result of magic that Freya was practicing and traveling about doing. Freya was the foremost practitioner of the art of Saidir, the most powerful kind of, <coughs> excuse me, magic that is a type of shamanism that attempts to change fate by weaving new events into being. 
So Saidir practiced. So like other practitioners, she'd wander from town to town plying her craft for hire. She used the name Aidir, which means bright. And she eventually came to Asgard, the home of the Aesir. The Aesir were initially quite taken by her powers and sought her services. But after a time, they realized that their values of honor, kin loyalty, and obedience to the law were being pushed aside by the selfish desires they sought to fulfill with her magic. So they started to blame Freya for their own shortcomings. And the Aesir started to call her Gulveig, which means gold greed. And they attempted to murder her. Three times they tried to burn her. And three times she was reborn from the ashes. Because of this, the Aesir and the Vanir came to hate and fear one another. And this hatred and hostility erupted into war. The Aesir, an orderly group of gods, fought by the rules of playing combat with weapons and brute force, while the Vanir used more subtle means of magic and probably some deception. The war went on for some time, with both sides gaining the upper hand. It's like trading, trading wins with each other. Eventually, though, the two tribes, these two tribes of divinities became weary of fighting and decided to call a truce. And the custom was that the two sides agreed to pay tribute to each other by sending hostages to live among the other tribe. Freya, her brother Frey, and the Vanir guard Njord went to Odin's side, the Aesir, to live as hostages there, whereas Onir and Mimir, Odin's gods, went to live with the Vanir tribe. Which, speaking of Odin and the Aesir, their home, Asgard. Since we've been talking about this Aesir-Vanir war, let's look at Asgard, their home. Something to point out with Asgard is it's one of only two worlds with the guard suffix, which means that it and Midgard are the only two worlds with any kind of enclosure. It's home to gods like Thor and Odin. Asgard is connected to Midgard by a bridge called the Bifrost. And this bridge has the appearance of some multicolor, almost rainbow-like. Its guardian is the god Eimdall, who is forever vigilant and waiting for the appearance of the beasts from the other worlds to sound a great horn known as the Yalahorn to alert Asgard that Ragnarok has begun. Asgard is also home to the Golden Hall of Valhalla, where Odin sits with those who have served well in life in Midgard. They wait for the end. But how did things begin, according to the Norse? Before we get to the end, we have to know how things started. And that answer comes from the last two worlds, Niflheim and Muspelheim. Niflheim is the world of primordial cold, mist, ice, and darkness. And therefore, Niflheim must be its opposite. 
It's the realm of fire. Muspelheim is also the home of fire giants and is led by one known as Surt, the largest of these fire giants, and he wields a great flaming sword. And where these two worlds overlapped is a place called Ginyungigap. It's where the ice and fire met. And in this meeting, the first being, according to the Norse, the giant Ymir, came into existence. Thematically, you could think of Ymir as the personification of the chaos before creation, which is also kind of depicted as uh, being, what would you think of the void of the Ginyungagap, kind of impersonal. Both Ymir and Ginyungagap, you could think of as ways of talking about limitless potential that isn't actually realized yet, that hasn't come about, that the particular things that we find in the world around us haven't formed yet. This is why the Vikings described it as a void, which is interesting when you compare it with other religions. If you consider from Genesis, quote, darkness upon the face of the deep, end quote. Just a fun little comparison there. Ginyungigap is supposed to be nothingness, but it nevertheless contains primal matter from which the Norse gods like Odin were born and eventually slew Ymir to bring creation out of chaos. To hold these creations together, a seed was dropped into a well that also formed from the meeting of the ice and fire worlds, known as the Well of Urd. And from this seed, the great tree Yggdrasil grew, and it holds all of the worlds in its branches and roots. The chaotic elements that remained after Ymir was slain would end up taking a lot of forms. Some of these forms would end up being dragons and snakes. And these dragons and snakes lie beneath Yggdrasil, eating away at its roots, trying to break the world tree to cause it to collapse. The well of Urd sustains Yggdrasil, causing its roots to regrow at a rate equal to that of the snakes and the dragon eating it. That very notion, however, signifies the mortality of the great tree and the cosmos along with it. Now, something else that struck me as intriguing was, it was a question that kind of came to my mind. Is why nine worlds specifically in Norse mythology? Why nine? So this would be the first time that I decided to look at the symbolism of numbers. I didn't look into the symbolism of every single number. There were just three that kind of came to my mind to look at. First, it started with nine. And nine represents the completion of a cycle, which is weirdly fitting for how the Norse viewed their religion because they believed that Ragnarok was the end of a cycle. But the end of the cycle is not the end of everything, more so that the cycle comes to a completion so that a new one can begin. There's also some negative meaning to the number nine. It's, a tribe, it's ascribed to people like as individuals. So like if you're classified as a number nine, 
you'd be someone who would say that you're fine on your own and you don't need help from anyone. Which anyone who stops and thinks even for a minute about that would realize that that is not realistic. Life is too difficult to be taken on alone. Which that's still somewhat in keeping with the nine worlds because they are somewhat fractious and disjointed from each other. I'd say Midgard and Asgard probably have the most positive relationship with each other out of the nine worlds. Because when you look at it, Midgard is trying to be like Asgard. It's kind of a relationship with those two. Two. There you go. Your other number. Where's the other seven? Which brings us to the number seven. Seven seems to represent the difficulty in expression according to those who study numerology. Which makes sense when you look at how distinct the other seven worlds are compared to Midgard and Asgard, who are quite similar. They, the other seven worlds represent dramatically different things. Light. Dark, fire, ice, life, death, and pure chaos. They're all examples of unrefined potential to the extreme. Which then when you think about the serpents gnawing away at the roots of Yggdrasil trying to cause the tree to collapse? I don't know, to me you could almost picture the nine worlds as fragile pieces of fruit. That if they fall... Their contents would just be splayed everywhere, which is kind of what happens in Ragnarok. All the worlds come together and they fight it out. They're all crossed over. So when the tree finally trembles, it signals Ragnarok. The event long feared by Odin. So when did he learn of what would happen at Ragnarok? And probably more specifically, what would happen to him? Now before I tackle this, I need to address something about Norse mythology overall. I find it fascinating and inspiring from kind of a philosophical point of view, but it is at the same time full of contradictions. The 13th century poet Snorri Sturluson attempted to organize the mythology, and while I applaud his efforts, he left some gaping holes and puzzles in it. For example, there's not exactly a clear timeline of events. So I've had to kind of infer some things, and my telling of this might not even be correct. So with that little preface in mind, Odin. From what I can gather, at some point after Odin sacrificed his eye to drink from Mimir's well and he gained the gift of enhanced perception into other realms, he encountered a being known as a vulva. These beings are able to see the past, present, and future. The vulva spoke to Odin and recounted the Aesir Vanir war to him, which maybe you could chalk that up to, well, it was a war, and war isn't exactly a quiet secret. The next thing she told him, however, was more personal. She told him that she knew where he had hidden his eye, and that Mimir drinks mead from that spring every morning. Remember, Odin gave up his eye at Mimir's well to gain that enhanced perception, and as far as he knew, only him and Mimir knew about that. So now Odin was intrigued, and his full attention was given to the vulva. 
He then offered her three necklaces in exchange for more information, particularly about the future. For the first necklace, she told him of the Valkyries, the ladies of the Warlord, in this case, the ladies of Odin. They will bring him those who have lived noble lives or fought and died heroically in battle, for he will need them for what After Odin gives the second necklace, she tells him that he and his Einar Jarr, his warriors of Valhalla, will be devoured by Fenrir, but not before fighting valiantly against many of the other chaotic forces when Ragnarok begins. Odin, at this point, probably filled with a bit of uncertainty, knowing he will not survive Ragnarok, gives the Volva the last necklace. She tells him that one of his sons will avenge his death immediately after he's devoured, and that after the burning of the world, those that survive will recount Odin's heroism. So here's my take on the possible reasoning for what Odin's about to do next. You'll recall earlier that Odin and the Aesir fought against Freya and the Vanir. Freya was a Sadir practitioner, the magic that could change fate, the magic that could introduce new events into a timeline to try to change outcomes. This magic has to have a source, right? Where does it come from? Odin decides to look into this question. By this point, he's already one-eyed and has the gift of increased perception. So he's sitting on his throne in Asgard, and he starts peering into the deep places of the cosmos, to the deep places of Yggdrasil. And he finds three beings towards the bottom of Yggdrasil. Not quite the very bottom, but towards the base of the tree. They're known as the Njorns. There's three of them. They're maidens who weave the threads of fate of all beings in existence. One of the methods they use is to carve runes into the trunk of Yggdrasil. The runes carry intentions that affect everything in the Nine Worlds. Odin, after watching the Njorns for quite a while from his seat, he began to envy their powers and their wisdom, and so he decides to set the task of coming to know the runes. And since the runes' native home is in the well of Urd with the Norns, the runes don't reveal themselves to anyone except those who have proven themselves worthy of such fearful insights and abilities. So Odin decides to hang himself from a branch of Yggdrasil, positioned just above the Will of Urd, and he also pierces himself with his spear, and he peers downward into the shadowy waters below. And right before he did this, he told the other gods to not grant him the slightest bit of aid, not even a sip of water. And he stared downward and downward, calling to the runes. He survived in this state, teetering on the precipice that separates the living from the dead, 
for nine days and nights. At the end of the ninth night, he at last perceived shapes in the depths, the runes. They had accepted his sacrifice and shown themselves to him, revealing to him not only their forms, but also the secrets that lie within them. So now that he knows this knowledge in his already formidable memory, Odin ends his ordeal and gets himself down from the branch of Yggdrasil. Probably with a big groan of relief. And having been initiated into the mystery of the runes, Odin recounts to himself, quote, Then I was fertilized and became wise. I truly grew and thrived. From a word to a word, I was led to a word. From a work to a work, I was led to a work. End quote. Equipped with this knowledge of how to wield the runes, he became one of the mightiest and most accomplished beings in the cosmos. He learned chants that enabled him to heal emotional and bodily wounds, to bind his enemies and render their weapons worthless, to free himself of constraints, to put out fires, to expose and banish practitioners of malevolent magic, to protect his friends in battle, to wake the dead to win and keep a lover, and to perform many other feats like these. Odin's ordeal is therefore a sacrifice of himself to himself, and it's probably the ultimate sacrifice because he's a god sacrificing himself to himself, for who could offer a bigger offering than himself? So that awkwardly put together sentence I think needs a little bit of qualification part of Odin survives the sacrifice in order to be the recipient of his sacrifice in addition to the runes themselves a part of him did indeed die this is suggested not just by the imagery of death in the verses but also by the imagery of rebirth Odin speaks of himself being fertilized and uh, growing and thriving kind of like a seedling for all of this, though, even Odin couldn't change his fate. He was still doomed to be devoured by Fenrir. The Norse believe in fate being like a thread. Your story's already written, and you can't do anything to change it. Another analogy that I like with this idea, and one that I think the Norse could appreciate, is time and fate being like an hourglass. And every grain of sand in the hourglass is something that is meant to happen. Though the grains of sand may not fall in the same order each time it's turned over, the end result is still the same. Odin, from what I can tell at best, changed the order in which the sand fell. So, here's... Another couple thoughts. Yes, the gods all knew their fates, but did they all share their fates with each other? I don't honestly know the answer to that question. Or more specifically, did Odin share his fate with the others? While the, and while the Njorns may determine the fates of all beings, one thing they don't have control over 
is how all those beings choose to meet their end. Odin could have just sat around and waited for the end and did nothing, but instead he chose to prepare. He bettered himself as best as he could, and he gathered an army of those who did the same in a special place he called Valhalla. And rather than meet fate alone, they would all stand bravely together. Odin set an example for his family to follow. Which here's the f philosophical lesson, I think. It's something we should remember. Though it may not be verbally acknowledged, you may not get that like on social media when you share your story. You get all those, all those views on your story, but no one gives it that little heart. Our sacrifices and strides to better ourselves to higher ideals are still being noticed by others and can be the inspiration for them to do the same. And maybe if enough people in the world did that, took on sacrifice, responsibility, and aimed at that which is highest, that it would justify and give meaning to the hardship of life. Thanks for listening.